Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And it's when you start working on the language. I don't want a war against war because we've proven that wars against anything cause more of the problem. The war against terror created more terror. You know, the war against poverty created more poverty. The war against drugs introduced fentanyl onto our streets. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want a war against an ideology or concept or an idea. I want to believe in peace. You know, and that's the difference because in order to promote peace, you have to be brave. Because you have to stand in the violence and not return violence for violence. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? I am. <laughs> All right. Cool. All right, everybody, returning to the show, the legend himself. I was just busting his balls off camera, but he's like bringing up real estate value around here. I'm wearing a flannel. He's in a suit jacket. The man himself, Joe Evans. How you doing, dude? Doing good, Kyle. Doing good. So, I mean, a couple things have happened since the last time I was on. And, you know, I, I know there were some things you wanted to discuss. And uh, I'm going to leave the opening questions up to you and see where it leads, man. <laughs> For sure, dude. Well, you know what? Um, I, I don't want to – how do I phrase this without – being derogatory towards anybody you're a little bit of a beacon of hope for me because you and i are very culturally different right so i'm a very culturally conservative person and yeah. i don't want i don't want to shoehorn you any which way but um your values or at least the way that you talk about things um is i don't want to necessarily say more progressive but definitely more left-leaning and and i don't say that in a bad way but like a lot of libertarians now seem to default to the right and yeah. I, I'm I'm in that camp, right? Because once again, I'm a culturally conservative person, and I grew up listening to Ben Shapiro, Stephen Crowder, Stefan Molyneux, and people that I still agree with quite a few things on. But um, to see somebody like you, um, I really appreciate your outlook because um, it, it kind of does bring me back to kind of the libertarian roots. But not only that, um, I do question sometimes if I'm buying into the right wing hysteria with all this grooming stuff going on. Like it's happening, but like the severity and how much it's happening is a different story. And that context and nuance seems to get left out. And um, someone that you might appreciate as well. Um, Robbie Martin kind of pushed back on me once and had said, um, you know, well, what about 
kids being taken to go see explicit movies, which they can legally do. Um, th- th- there's a lot of nuance to be had here. And I think most sensible people say, hey, you shouldn't like fly your penis or vagina in front of kids. But, um, you know, th- there's like, it- it- it's just a lot of hysteria that's going on now. And I don't think it's just being put there naturally. I think this is being put out there to piss people off. So anyways, oh, yeah. th- I'm sorry, that's a long tangent, but yeah, go ahead. Take it wherever you want. No, no you're absolutely right. An awful lot of this stuff that's being put out there is being put out, you know, to be deliberately and intentionally antagonistic. Yeah. You know, uh, the videos of people sh- showing up with their kids at drag parades, you know, I remember my first time being down on Mission Street during, you know, the Pride Parade in San Francisco. You know, I'm down there and I got some extremely conservative friends that just happened to get off of the rail with me at that particular location. We come up just as dykes on bikes or, you know, heading on past and they're like, uh, we're in the wrong neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I'm going, well, actually, actually, this is what, but I mean, I understand you guys need to leave. Feel free, mm-hmm. you know, and that's one of those things where you see an awful lot of people showing up for the diversity you know, because an awful lot of those parades, even though there's a lot of sexual content, it's not necessarily about the sexuality, mm-hmm. you know, but again, it's one of those things parents need to be responsible for what they expose their kids to, mm-hmm. you know, now an awful lot of things that are happening these days, you find kids in awkward situations, you find performers in awkward situations where they showed up expecting to do one kind of show. And now all of a sudden they got kids sitting in the audience and it's like, um, folks, I'm not sober enough for this shit, you know, (laughs) and as as sad as it is, there are an awful lot of performers I've seen that simply cannot perform sober. Mm -hmm. You know, they show up in a specific mindset. They show up already having had a few to loosen up. And next thing they know, they got to adjust. And, you know, some of them simply aren't up to the task. And we see more and more of this, particularly as the right, you know, wants to set up these scenarios as if they're all bad. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, parents have a certain amount of responsibility for having created these situations, mm-hmm. you know, and to a certain degree, that's really up to the parents, you know, and they need to be held responsible. And in a sense, they are because their, their kids grow up and go, what the hell did you do to me as a kid, man? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so from a certain perspective, I understand the social conservative values. Because mm-hmm. I was raised in Boise, Idaho, you know, conservative capital of the world, you know, despite a certain amount of, you know, heritage. And Boise's got its own reputation, you know, Boise, Boise in the 1960s you know, the pogroms against, you know, gay culture and the leather club that was living in the underground back then, (laughs) you know, and uh, an awful lot of the blowback from that, you know, very 1940s Vimar Republic style blowback. (laughs) Um, You know, there's still a certain amount of it where it is about entertainment value. Mm -hmm. You know, I got conservative female friends. They're very upset about the whole drag because to them, drag is putting women's face on men. It's the black face, you know, of the modern era. And it's like, it's like, well, what point do we push back on that? Where do we push back on what is and is not, 
you know, an appropriate identity thing for it, where it crosses from between self-expression and actual crude, mm -hmm. you know, behavior and entertainment. Now, admittedly, these days there aren't that many entertainment venues that entertain blackface, mm -hmm. you know, as an vaudeville concept anymore mm -hmm. you know you still see things like um uh non-strip shows the uh uh what is it that they call the upscale drag uh strip shows these days the uh vaudeville variety um but yeah you know so there's a lot of that that does need to be paid attention to Mm -hmm. You know, am I saying go out and outlaw niche entertainment for people? No. You know, because then we start running into the issue of the more and more it's outlawed, the more and more device entertainment starts to create a draw. Right. It's when right. vice entertainment starts going underground. It's when the yeah. vice entertainment starts turning into vice tourism. Right. Well, it's almost like this is the rights kind of held to die on because for um, it, we, we always kind of observe this pattern where for Obama's eight year term, everybody was racist, homophobic, sexist, whatever. Mm -hmm. And obviously we could all say, yeah, there's a degree of that, but it's much more played up by the left. So that way they have an enemy to squash. Well, right now it seems like after Trump, you had four years of a cultural right movement, which I think is necessary to a degree. But the problem is that now they're like a sheep without a shepherd. And now they're seeing this. And I like we kind of alluded to earlier, this is being artificially propped up. So now they have their crusade to go against. And now you yeah. see a figure like Ron DeSantis, who's very cohesive and very focused and and um, is very popular amongst the right wing, and oh, he's yeah. willing to go after this stuff. So they found their shepherd, and they found what they want to squash. And it's like, okay, well, we we can say, as you've said, that parents are responsible for their children. Like we all agree that children should not be shown this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but how far are you willing to go to stop this? Because we shouldn't use the state to squash niche entertainment. But like, there should be kind of this community aspect of like, what the fuck are you doing with your kids? Like, don't don't take them to that stuff. But you know, yeah. if they're older, like if they're sixteen or seventeen, and then you know, you tell you explain to a sixteen or seventeen year old kid, hey, this stuff is going to be adult content. Are you okay with going to this? Okay, well, once again, they're they're no longer a kid; they're a teenager. But like, when it comes to younger kids, I get why people get so sensitive to this stuff because you are fucking with their kids. But once again, now when you have a popular figure like DeSantis leading the charge, you really kind of develop this almost like neo McCarthyist approach to things, and that's that's really the way that it's going. Well, and and yeah, and that ultimately is the problem because from a libertarian perspective, the last thing we want to do is involve the state. Because you give the state an inch, the state's going to take a mile. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those issues where we look at reproductive rights right now. Okay, we're talking about states like Idaho, where I live, where it's a zero tolerance intent. Our primary, primarily Republican legislature has full intent this legislative session of death before abortion. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, wait, wait, what, what about the mother, you know, ectopic pregnancies that, you know, require certain procedures? So now, now she's just going to have to die. And it's like, 
and we got an awful lot of state going, wait, we're not that regressive here. We're not willing to kill, you know, over an ectopic pregnancy. Right. So um, I think you and I come to a different um, place on this. Oh, so, yeah, we do. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to arm wrestle you all day about this. But um, in my opinion, and I think we actually agree right here. Um, I'm pro-life because I do believe that it is um, women ultimately do bear responsibility for who they sleep with. And everybody understands the consequences of that. So um, now let's say a woman gets raped or it is a non-viable pregnancy. I believe that it's okay to abort that. Now, once again, right. I, I don't like this, but um, it wasn't the woman's choice at that point. And then obviously we would say that a mother who um, can't carry a baby to term without, you know, detriment to her life or you know, something, yeah. a situation like that. Well, and obviously I mean, she has one of those things. You're looking at the scenario and it's like, look, we can save the mother or we can kill both. Right. <laughs> Clearly and we should like, save uh, the mother. You know, yeah. it's like the fetus isn't viable, but it's about to kill the mother. We mm. can save the mother. You know, so you start looking at those areas where, you know, an awful lot of us are reasonable in that we have certain expectations. The life of the mother, you know, will take precedence because this is, you know, she's a caregiver for other children already. She's part of the community. Right. She's, you know, vested human capital. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some women who will go, no, I will give my life in order to see this child born. And, you know, that's, you know, a valid, in, in my mind, an actual noble sacrifice. Right. But again, that's an individual choice. Mm -hmm. You know, the doctor shouldn't be, you know, if the doctor knows that there's a DNR associated with this birth, you know, that's where you are on that situation. Mm -hmm. You know, but most of us, you know, whether we're pro-life or pro-choice, we recognize that there is this gray area in which there's room for discussion. Mm -hmm. You know, you got the left, which looks, or you got the right, which is looking at it as no, the child's life is paramount and the child should not, you know, suffer for the sins of the father or the mother, mm -hmm. in which case, and it's like, well, come on, <laughs> you know, and then you got the left that's clear up to, no, right up until, you know, live birth date nine months after conception, <laughs> yeah. you know, up to two weeks post delivery you know retroact and it's eh, no you know and most of us as a culture we have this zone that's somewhere in the neighborhood of about six to twelve weeks yeah well that would be you know, is that first trimester or is that second trimester uh first trimester okay so yeah you so know, in, it, in my opinion i honestly think that you could probably get a majority of americans to agree on first trimester abortion and then anything after that would be illegal i think that's probably the happy spot and like in my mind um well, once again i'm pro-life as it gets but i do believe that like if, if i would have to compromise in order to kind of appease everybody that we have to share a country with then i believe that's probably the most reasonable place to go would be first and term honestly that's the status quo mm -hmm. 95 percent of abortions in the united states occur in the first trimester mm -hmm. they occur before week 12 right. you know and it's like why'd we overturn roe versus wade for something that largely as a country you know 
80 to 90 percent of us agree, you know, this this is when it's acceptable. You know, except now we have states where it's zero fault. I mean, zero tolerance. And it's like you got health, you know, and you continue to get into that discussion. Mm-hmm. Now, again, we both come into different sites on this, and it, but it's like some of us are looking at some states and going, no, that's too lenient. And we're looking at other states and going, whoa, that's too strict. Mm-hmm. You know, but most states are still adhering to what was essentially, you know, the status quo pre Roe versus Wade. That is 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, and most of the nation is good with that. You know, we just have a few states that have decided to push the envelope, determine, you know, and ultimately when it comes down to that is, you know, Idaho, we're already dealing with abortion tourism, you know, North Idaho. I mean, literally we didn't have any clinics in our largest city in Northern Idaho. You know, most of the people who needed, you know, that kind of care drove across the border into Washington state and had, you know, services performed in Spokane, Washington, Mm -hmm. you know, outlawing it here hasn't changed that. They're still going across the border to Spokane, Washington. Now down here in Boise, which is where most of the Boise metro area, they've actually had to close down the clinics here in Boise and open them up in Ontario. So now you're looking at a 60 mile drive in order to get your abortion tourism, medical care taken care of. Not that that's any different than what we're currently doing with medical cannabis. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, so that, that's a good pivot. So yeah. yeah, you've been kind of focusing on that. So um, oh, yeah. you had kind of elaborate on what's been going on there because I, I think you started like an <laughs> initiative or something like that, but yeah, take it away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so here about four months ago, what was it? Mid-October. So it was three months ago. Um, we started an initiative here in the state of Idaho for the legalization of medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, yeah, from certain perspectives, you're looking at this and going, well, Joe, you're a libertarian and legalizing medical marijuana comes with taxes. So the tax is like, yeah, yeah, I get it. You know, but the thing is, is when it comes to the pragmatic course of action, right? You don't rewild America overnight. You don't collapse <laughs> everything that they come to understand as their safety nets and processes. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things we looked at the polls. Polls came back. 68% support legalization of medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. And now that's legalization. That comes with the regulations. That comes with taxation. That comes with your little, you know, marijuana tax stamp and all of that fun stuff. Yeah. Okay. 48% supported uh, recreational or full decrim what? of medical marijuana. And it's like, yeah, well, 48 is not enough to win on an initiative. Mm-hmm. You know, and that pretty much states that there is a difference of about 20% of the population that is comfortable with a regulated medical product for those carrying cards versus just anybody being able to light up on the street anytime they want mm-hmm. you know so it's like okay we we got it okay idaho we need to take a slow approach and truth is is medical is my primary care anyway they want to keep doing their recreational tourism they can keep driving 60 miles across the border to ontario oregon you know or 
30 to Spokane, Washington, if they're up in Coeur d'Alene. You know, and most of them prefer to do that anyway, because half of them are scared half to death. They're going to lose their guns if they find if federal <laughs> government finds out they got a medical card, you know, Jesus. which is. <laughs> what do we have a Second Amendment for? Right. <laughs> so here, we got we do three million dollars in border town dispensary business a week. Oh, wow. OK. Idaho is responsible for 10 percent. Of Oregon's marijuana sales <laughs> annually. Right. Well, you know what's funny is I was listening to you on um, Reed's show. I want to say it was the first time you were actually on there. Um, it was like episode 28, um, yeah. just before um, we hopped on here. And uh, you were speaking to kind of the idea, this idea of libertarianism and decentralization, where you can bring you know, kind of the network and the market back to local communities. And it's funny that you brought up how 10% um, you know, of the sales are going out to another state. Well, why can't that be in Boise, Idaho? Like there, nobody really cares about weed anymore. Like I hate to smell the shit, but like smoke it. You're, you're not like dude, hurting yourself. Dude, <laughs> 90% of the people these days don't even smoke the bud. What's up, everybody? Um, we're going to take a quick break and tell you about the show's sponsors. Um, we are brought to you by Element T Electrolytes. I've been using this stuff for years, and what I've honestly found is that if I didn't have electrolytes before some kind of cardio, and sometimes even before workouts, that my workout performance, or definitely cardio performance, would suffer greatly. Um, Sodium is responsible for every single movement, pretty much, in your entire body. And let's say you drink a lot of caffeine, <laughs> like I like to do, then um, maybe it is a good idea, like I do every single morning, um, put some LMNT chocolate electrolytes um, there in your coffee to get a little bit more sodium, potassium, and uh, magnesium in your coffee so that way whatever diuretic effect you get from the caffeine is pretty much diluted by the fact that you put chocolate salt in it. Um, also, it tastes really, really good. Get some uh, chocolate creamer, hazelnut creamer, or even coconut. And, uh, mix that all up it tastes really really good so uh yeah make sure you drop by go to drinklmnt.com slash in liberty and health and uh pick you up some electrolytes today all right guys thanks yeah literally go and get the processed vape juice with thc in it yep. and everything smells like blueberries and strawberry shortcake <laughs> right you know it's like you're looking at these diehard you know hippies you know, walking around and you're you're walking up to them and you're expecting to smell the weed because they're behaving, you know, and you expect to smell that punch and it's like, dude, what smells like strawberry short? What do you smell? You, you know, like, I I thought the point was part of the punch. <laughs> no, man, <laughs> this is so much better. <laughs> okay, dude, got it. But yeah, you know, that's one of those things. We can do a localized market. And thing is, right now, California is overproducing. Half the stuff they produce turns around and goes out on the black market because it's overtaxed. Mm. You're having the same problem with Colorado. You know, the dispensaries can pick and choose who's providing, so it's literally a bidding war. Yeah. You know, and you have organs, you know, the same way. Oregon literally went full open market, you know, grow as much as you want anybody can grow it 
you know, and they're dealing with overproduction right now and overtaxation. So you're seeing, you know, three quarters of the production in that state going off on the black market. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, when you're looking at legalization, you know, the black market's still illegal. Mm-hmm. The black market will still land you in prison. If you get caught processing so much without your marijuana tax stamp through an authorized market, you're still going to jail for it. You're still going to prison. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's one of the things that an awful lot of people don't really understand when it comes to where the markets are on that. It's like, yeah, you're buying it off the market, but unless you're carrying a medical card with product from a medical dispensary that's labeled, you bought something without a tax stamp. And if the prosecutor in that county really wants to get froggy, you're going to jail. You're going to jail mm-hmm. at a minimum. And, you know, in my state, if you happen to be caught with more than three ounces, you're going to prison. Lord. Right? Yeah. And it's like one of those things I was actually looking up, and it's like in the state of Idaho, we don't regulate the quantity or the quality of the THC. So if you buy two 1.6 ounce chocolate edible candy bars, you cross the border with a felony <laughs> in the back. Yeah, for, for a little bit of happy chocolate. <laughs> a little bit of happy chocolate, you know, and, and that's where we're at with it right now. Mm. You know, and it's like we could be growing it in Idaho. Idaho's got good country for it. We got lots of open terrain that hasn't been polluted by, you know, the Monsanto style farming that, you know, we promote almost solely in this state, right. you know, um, but it's like, we're looking at this and we've been having trouble getting it legalized for a number of different reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, 70% of the state, two thirds of the state is saying, no, we, we want medical. Right. We want it for what it represents with regards to post-traumatic stress you know, therapies, we want it for cancer treatments, we want it for seizures, you know, all of these different things we could be using it for that we get so many people off of, you know, their itinerary of 10, 15, 20 different medications that treat the cause and the symptom and the symptom of the symptom, you know, and on down the line, you know, medical marijuana gets an awful lot of people off as many as, you know, 10 to 15 different prescriptions. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you know, it's a pain management program that doesn't run the risk of killing people. Well, and on top of that, um, there is a untold burden of trillions of dollars on the healthcare system every single year from obesity and not only that, all, all the diseases that come with that. And I mean, mm-hmm. if you can legalize marijuana and that kind of blunts some of those, some of that cost, I mean, why not? Like this is it's so basic and it's kind of sad that with the republican party of today it's like they're going back in time i'm sure you saw the clip going around of donald trump saying that we want to start or we're going to fix the drug war by giving drug dealers the death penalty (laughs) what that lasted all about 40 seconds before he got enough backblast on twitter it was like oh i changed my mind we're gonna fix the drug war by ending the drug war you know um and, and that's what, but that's one of the realities about where we are in America. You know, 
decennials, you know, uh, Gen Y, Gen Z, you know, the up and coming Gen AA or whatever they're calling, you know, the kids of my grandkids, <laughs> you know, um, whatever they're calling them is they're really beginning to understand that making marijuana illegal was literally about creating a mechanism for control mm -hmm. in communities that the federal government back in 1970, you know, felt needed to be removed for the greater good. Mm -hmm. You know, they used marijuana plants as in actually planting them as bad evidence, you know, in order to justify the removal of several high-profile activists that were anti-war, that were pro-peace. Mm -hmm. You know, here we are 70, 50 years later, you know, after Nixon initiated his war on drugs and your years and years of Biden, you know, doubling down on it, you know, um, 50 years later, here we are, we're looking at another pro-peace movement. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking at needing to legalize medical marijuana for a number of reasons. And it's like we're seeing that this combination of fear-based control, keeping marijuana illegal, that's an interesting uh, topic right there. Because when you realize that marijuana is one of the leading inexpensive and accessible anti-anxiety medications, and so much of the mainstream media propaganda is fear-based. Right. You know how many people sit down on the couch and just, dude, that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I play with one oh. of them. I play with <laughs> one of them in a band. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not scared of that. Why should I be scared of that? Why, why are you selling me fear, man? Why are you selling me fear? You know, but that's what it is, is right now, the high anxiety culture that we exist in is something that can be set aside with anti-anxiety medication like a natural plant, like marijuana, that can be grown in your backyard, readily accessible, but it would negate so much of the fear propaganda that's coming across mainstream media these days. Right. Well, it's very, very necessary, especially for the Republicans right now, because I really think they're going to go full swing on this drug war, because I, I don't know if you've seen some of the stuff that they've been saying about fentanyl. Um, I like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I like Ron DeSantis as far as his response to COVID. Other than that, I mean, that's pretty much where that ends. But um, you're seeing all these people talk about 300 deaths a day from fentanyl. And believe me, I, I pulled heaven and earth to try and find a source for where they're getting 300 deaths a day from fentanyl. Can't find it anywhere. At most, I think I found 176 people die a day from fentanyl, which don't get me wrong, one is too many, but like they're right. blowing this way out of proportion. And I don't think it's for just because, oh, fentanyl bad. It's because they really want to fucking turn the screws on the, the drug stuff. Well, and, and that's where it is with the drug stuff. Reason why is because it's not necessarily fentanyl. Right. Okay, when you start looking at 300, it's opioid deaths. Right. Okay, which about half of them are attributed to fentanyl overdoses because fentanyl got laced with something that somebody bought off the street. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
thing is, is fentanyl was laced into it because somebody got addicted to an opioid some other way than street meds. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, their insurance is gone. So the only place they can get their oxycodone anymore is off of a street dealer. Right. You know, and whoever provides the street dealer may or may not give a shit whether or not the poor son of a bitch lives. You know, and that's where we're at. You know, we are looking at 1920-style prohibition where the police in New York City literally went around poisoning alcohol that they sold to the speakeasies in order to justify the war on liquor. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we have an agency, whether it's foreign or domestic, it doesn't matter. That is literally dropping poison in our streets. You know, because we can't control the quality on a black market. You know, 90% of these opioid overdoses, whether there's fentanyl introduced into it or whether it's just, you know, straight bad heroin or something else, could be alleviated if methadone clinics were capable of going public. Right. You know, if you had a methadone clinic on every corner, just like you got a Starbucks on every corner, we wouldn't be dealing with overdoses. Mm -hmm. Now, there's another problem that comes with that kind of rational addiction. You know, but you're not dealing with dead people. You're not dealing with corpses on the street. You're not dealing with, you know, then it comes around to how does the community support the economy that prevents people from devolving into this kind of addiction escapism? Right. You would have to take the boot off Americans necks. And that's something yeah. that they don't they, they want to blame China. That's what's going on right now. China and Russia. But it seems like China do a larger degree, at least by Republicans. And then, um, you know, obviously Russia by most Democrats. Well, I mean, you step back and you go, OK, well, who, where are we getting all of the fentanyl from? Well, somebody's producing it. When we were in Afghanistan, 80 percent of the global uh, global uh opium production was coming out of Afghanistan. It was going straight across the Pakistan border into China and being compressed down into fentanyl or whatever, and then being shipped to wherever. Okay. Now, the thing is, is was it actually being handled by a Chinese, you know, crime, drug cartel, crime cartel? Were they the ones doing it? Or was, you know, it's some sort of CIA, FBI counter-op in order to justify the continued war on drugs by killing Americans by, you know, and it's like, I don't know. Right. Problem is, is my faith in the CIA and the FBI? <laughs> it's too easy to believe that they would do it. Right. Right. And it's funny because they, like we've kind of been alluding to, they really need this to ramp up tensions. And it's funny because you um, you can find tons of articles on this. If you look up the fentanyl flow, uh, China actually made it illegal to, I think it was produce fentanyl in 2019. So it's not like they want this shit to be getting over here. Yes, it was originally coming from there, but for the last three years, they said that shit's illegal. And you know, China could be a lot more stricter than we are now. Like obviously yeah. a lot of the stuff that we're told about China is bullshit 
And but once again, we need a foe here. So we point to the CCP and say they have the social credit system. There's nets outside of people's workplaces. And, you know, they're committing genocide against the Uyghurs, even though nobody's been able to prove that um, they, they need that demonization there so they can have an enemy. And once again, this is what everybody's talking about. You know, Chad is a big bad guy. It's it's so ridiculous. Well, yeah, but that's one of the things. We need an external enemy because without an external enemy, you know, we have to recognize the domestic enemy. Right. Well, they don't want that. <laughs> no, we don't want that because we all know, you, we know who the domestic enemy is. Mm-hmm. You know, they continue to process bills, stealing $1.7 billion from us every year. <laughs> right. Uh they steal from the American people in order to give it to, you know, choose winners and losers, you know, in the American free market system. You know, we all know it's, you know, socialized, you know, risk for the wealthy and, you know, bootstrap, you know, individualism for the poor. Yep. (laughs) It's like, we recognize you're poor, but we're still going to take 40%, 50%, 60%, 70% of your income. You know, and award it to somebody else in order to continue extorting the other 30% that's left afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, we're looking at a crisis in the housing market right now mm-hmm. because hedge fund managers who were granted access to the Social Security Insurance Fund are using it to buy up properties all across the United States. They're driving prices up. They're driving people out of homes. Mm-hmm. But that's all right. Social Security, uh, you know, fund will continue to be supported by rent (laughs) Mm -hmm. on seniors and gen y gen z and gen aa you know for the next 200 years it's like but but where do we lose you know people were supposed to be able to buy a home and acquire property be able to use their wealth to acquire more, you know, be able to use their labor to acquire wealth. You know, that is ultimately the way we were taught capitalism was supposed to work. Mm -hmm. You know, work hard, you make money, you get rich. Well, here we are, we're working hard. Somebody else with billions in printed fiat currency is buying up the houses and running them back to us. And that's lost labor. You know, that's a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, depending on where you're renting at. You know, it's it's not going into your wealth. It's not going into your pocket. Mm-hmm. There's a corporate landlord who doesn't give a shit whether you die, who owns the property that you live in, and he's extorting three grand a month out of you. And you're busting your ass trying to figure out, I want to buy a home. Sorry, bud, you've been renting. you got no credit rating. We can't loan you anything. You're going to have to keep renting until you die. Right. And it's so funny because, as you kind of said earlier, you know, we do get so much taken out of us in taxes that and the interest rates have been so low for so long that people have no reason to save. So then you give people who don't have to put anything down 
you know, you can give them a mortgage and then get a house, but then, you know, what's our incentive to keep the house if they don't have to save? Like nobody saves anymore. And that used to be kind of the American way is that you would save up so that way you could have nice things. You could start a business, you could build a good life. But once again, they've just completely fucked the economy because they wanted to build the empire and print all the money and give it to all the bankers and all the weapons manufacturers. They kept interest rates low. So that way, once again, everybody gets a payday, but then the people like you and me who, you know, work an honest job and, just try to provide for our families um we get screwed and then now yeah. you know it's just a never-ending cycle yeah and it's continuing and that's one of the problems with the way the system was developed mm-hmm. you know ever since fdr you know in his golden era you know post-world war ii okay. you know post you know japanese internment camp scenario <sighs> We'll, we'll we'll get back to that discussion a little bit later. You know, but it's like that entire scenario was about the consolidation of wealth in the hands of a few. Mm-hmm. You know, FDR ran a collectivist, you know, arrangement. It was government and industry stronger together. You know, it was literally what Mussolini built his idea on was this pre-Keynesian Keynesian economics where <laughs> the government set the pattern for, you know, um, purchases through ownership you know creating these scenarios you know fdr in it you know who was it tennessee valley authority you know tennessee valley authority gave electricity to everybody you know who made it big as a result of tennessee valley authority general electric because all of a sudden every household could get an electric washing machine (laughs) (laughs) you know and it's like saw this (laughs) saw this great video clip the other day of somebody taking a look at a General Electric manual. <laughs> somebody was going, what are you doing? And it's like, I'm reading the manual on the A-10 minigun. But it says General Electric. General Electric makes washing machines. <laughs> and General Electric also makes the minigun on the A-10. Both of them spin around real fast. <laughs> Why General Electric got the bit on the minigun? But the thing that General Electric made it big, you know, first electricity washing machines, and then they got big arms deals. Mm-hmm. You know, General Electric has been making arms and munitions for the American government since, well, FDR. Um, that's one of those things we continue to see this collectivism continue to build and support the war machine. Mm -hmm. doesn't support you and me it doesn't support community building yeah it doesn't support what i call social capital Mm -hmm. in fact what's your incentive to to stay in a community and support the community and build that network and that coalition of friendships knowing that along is going to come zoning and they're going to gentrify you out of your home you can no longer afford it because you got to move well now you just had to sever all of that emotional labor that's been invested in building your community building your network Mm -hmm. you know all of those weekend barbecues with the neighbors you know it's like maybe we'll see each other again in 10 years maybe you'll end up moving out where i end up moving to Mm -hmm. you know but it's like you you lose that investment in labor 
And I'm not just talking about your physical labor, the things that you go to work and earn money on, but the emotional labor, the uh, mental labor that goes in creating your home, creating your community, building those bonds, you know, with your neighbors, you know, the shared fence line, mm. you know, that you talk over, you know, and exchange ideas, you know, the barbecues with the neighbors, you know, we literally gentrify that out of existence now. Mm -hmm. you know and when you're renting what's the incentive to building build community for a renter there's not nearly the same one as you would if it was a mortgage because with a mortgage you know you're hey this is 30 years um i'm laying ground here right my roots are going to yeah. be here and i'm going to extend out in the community and hopefully make this a better place for me and my kids and their kids you know what school your kid's going to go to for the next six 12 years yep you know, you're invested in the PTA. Mm -hmm. You know, you're showing up at the basketball games. You're showing up at the football games. You're doing regular reviews of what's in the school library. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm not sure this is the appropriate place for my 12-year-old to be learning about sex education. Can we um, maybe put this, like, back behind something somewhere? <laughs> Put, put it on a higher shelf. He's not right? that tall yet. <laughs> put it on a higher shelf. Wait till he's tall enough to reach the shelf. I, I think that's about the right time for him to actually, you know, learn about that. But, you know, that, that's one of those things. Where's your emotional investment in the community? Where's your physical, you know, and intellectual investment? Where is your physical investment in where you spend the money that you earned with your labor? Right. You know, it's gone. It's disappearing. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's one of those things that the left and the right understand, but they come at it from different angles. You know, and that's part of the problem is, is, you know, the left looks at it as a right to housing. Mm -hmm. Whereas the right looks at it as my right to a home. Mm -hmm. You know, and we lose something a little bit in the transition in language because it's like the right wants to know I earned this is my mortgage I've been paying on the mortgage for 20 years versus the left going well I've been living in the city for 20 and I've never actually owned property but I still want to be able to live in an affordable housing unit mm -hmm. and it's like we're both actually getting hit with the exact same problem because the source of the problem is the same But it's like, because of the language barrier, we keep talking across each other rather than identifying solutions to the problem. Because, I mean, the left can honestly look at, they're big on collectivism, right? Yeah. Why not go into a tenant's union where the tenants of the apartment complex own the apartment collectively rather than belonging to some out-of-state corporation? Right. That would be a better situation because once again, the, the tenants union is going to have more involved and more, as you said, social capital in this community and in this specific apartment complex versus like BlackRock or Vanguard or whatever company buying up the property. You know, and that's one of those things. These people may be perfectly happy living in a communal, you know, superstructure like that, mm -hmm. you know, and it still creates a sense of ownership. It creates that sense of belonging.
Mm -hmm. You know, that you don't get when every 30 days you get this warning from your landlord saying, pay up or you're gone. You know, whereas a tenant union might be able to be more flexible on the issue of, okay, we understand you're out of work, so we can float you for a few months till you're working again, mm -hmm. you know, or there's a job somewhere in, you know, the community that we can get you. Mm -hmm. You may not pay what you used to. But it's something. It's something. You know, so we got these options, but all of these options are being shut down by the exact same process. Mm -hmm. We don't allow ownership by the workers, by you and me, mm -hmm. because somebody's been granted access to, you know, a trillion dollars of the social security, mm -hmm. you know, fund to go around buying up properties because that's where the tax break is. That's where the return is on the investment. You know, so it's like, here we had this great idea. How are we going to take care of the elderly? We got this social security insurance fund. They'll just pay into it. <laughs> yeah. And now we're using that social security insurance fund to buy them out of their houses. Right. <laughs> you know, we lost the purpose behind that program. And we've given it to people who don't give a shit about the damage they do. Mm -hmm. They just want their payday. They want their payday and they're getting their payday. And we continue to support them getting their payday, you know, day in, day out. And this is one of those things where we look at the difference in the language between the right and the left and we go, we're just talking past each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's one of those things I actually brought up the issue. You know, we have within libertarian circles, okay. We really do have three different libertarian cultures. We have the rural libertarians. Let's build a compound and let's go off grid. You have your suburban libertarians. I just want my truck, my acre, and, you know, whatever else that comes with it. Mm -hmm. And then you got your urban libertarians. They're talking, it's all in crypto, man. It's all in crypto. <laughs> You know, but each one of these libertarian subcultures have their own requirements, have their own needs, have their own wants. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that we end up getting lost on with in libertarian circles, because you'll find people, find libertarians that, again, are talking past each other about, well, decentralization. You know, what does decentralization really mean? Well, it means the city takes care of the city. The burbs take care of the burbs. And if we're out in the country... We take care of our neighbors. Mm -hmm. Yet we still have people in each of those groups that go, no, we have to have the same policy for all three. And it's like, it doesn't really work that way. And it's not decentralized. And it's not these kids. Now you have, you're once again back to universal policies. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that's one of the things that we talk about an awful lot. Education. Okay. We have a centralized education policy that comes from D.C. Mm -hmm. You know, the kid who grows up in an auto town like Flint, Michigan, you know, even though all of the auto factories have been shut down there and moved to Mexico, you know, when they were growing up, the goal was, was they were going to get a job in the factory because it was a union auto workers job. They were going to do what dad did. Yep. You know, and they should have received an appropriate education to continue doing what their community did. 
You know, it's the same thing out here in Idaho. You're living out here in rural Idaho. You know you're going to grow up taking care of dad's farm. You're going to inherit dad's farm. Mm. You know, your brothers may get a house on the property and they'll help you work. And then it becomes sort of collective. You know, we're all working on dad's. But it's like you all learn 4-H. You all learn farm. You all learn agriculture. Except now we got this universal policy coming out of the education department in Washington, D.C. that says that this farmer is going to learn the exact same material, no more, no less, than this kid who's going to go work in the autos, in the auto factory. All right. And they're two completely yeah. different areas. So it's like, you know, here in Pennsylvania, still, you know, still city. Right, dude, I'm yeah. an hour north of Pittsburgh. The, the skills that we need to know here, you know, once again, cars break because the roads suck here. Um, there's steel factories everywhere. So the idea that like people need, like there's farms and stuff here, but you know, that's not like what Pittsburgh's known for. Pittsburgh's known for being steel city. So yeah. why, why can't we teach all these kids to be good mill workers and do what their parents did? They got a good union job where their families were taken care of and all that stuff. And then, you know, my parents and all their friends, you know, worked in dealerships and had good jobs. But now, you know, that's not it anymore. You know, you can't, you don't get that same quality of life. Or well, education. The thing is, you know, used to be six, 14, 16 years old, mm -hmm. you know, Daddy'd take you to work. Mm -hmm. You know, he'd put you to work, you know, shuttling materials. You know, you'd be making, you know, two and a half bucks an hour or something. You know, but you were doing something. You were in the shop. You were no, learning the people and you were watching other people work. You were watching other people do things. Okay. Right now, it is federal regulation that you can't work in a union until you're 18. Mm. You can't show up at a union shop until you're 18. So literally, only education you get is what dad's able to teach you at home because he can't take you to work right. and what the school's willing to teach you. And okay. all of this is being generated out of a universal policy coming out of Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And we wonder why kids aren't ready to be successful in the economies of their communities. Right. You know, it's like we're trying to teach software programming to people that were trained to be, you know, from a lineage that has a history of mill working, of doing steel work. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I didn't teach you how to program a mill, mm -hmm. do the automation, do the equivalent of a 3D print job using, you know, a steel lathe and stuff, you know. That's something that makes sense to him. But it's like trying to teach him to do an AI on how to, you know, run a supply chain management process. You know, there's not that many in steel country that are inclined towards that. Right. It's it's kind of like that whole uh, meme that was out a few years ago that you would get banned off Twitter for saying, but I learned to code. Like for some people, if, if you told someone like Reed Coverdale, if he got laid off or decided he wanted to quit trucking, okay, we'll just learn to code. It's like, that doesn't fucking work. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Yeah, it's silly. It, it, it's a different language. It's a different mindset. It's a different way of processing your reality. You know, now Reed's doing good. He's driving lineman trucks in New Hampshire right now, keeping power going <laughs> after this big blizzard. Yeah, you know, I'm waiting for him to run over a moose, honestly. Uh, 
Oh, that that'd be a hell of a bump. <laughs> that'd be a hell of a bump. <laughs> well, thing is, is he keeps his dash cam on all the time, so literally you would see him do it in slow motion. Yeah. You'd probably take it and download it and process it in slow motion so you can see. It. But yeah, uh, you know, but again, that's one of those things. How do you take somebody with twenty years in an industry who was just fired because nobody's allowed to work because of COVID? And say, you got to completely rewire your brain. Right. For most and people, be successful with kids have already been doing it for five years. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no competition. Half the people who are looking to hire you already looking at you're too old for this, man. I don't care what you learned or how good you became. Mm -hmm. You're too old for it. Right. You know. And we continue to look at that scenario all across the United States. You know, my dad was an IBM typewriter repairman. He was doing code back when Cobalt was the thing. Mm -hmm. You know, he took a hiatus. Now he's working as a clerk for $15 an hour at a convenience store. You know, because, yeah, it's deteriorated skill. He can't get back into the coding market. You can't get back into electronic repairs because he was working on IBM word processors and trash 80s back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah it's, yeah. it's really interesting to think about because, like, I, I think about this with the automotive industry all the time. Um, if you look at a car from, like, 1960 to, like, 1980, they really didn't change that much. But from, like, no. 1980 to now, it's ridiculous how much the vehicles have changed. Like, even – so I've been working on cars since about 2013, so pretty close to 10 years. Um, even just in, like, my 10 years doing it, it's really interesting to see how much vehicles just are constantly changing. And it's like come someone coming into this field, it's such a pain in the ass to learn – and I mean, I had to go through pretty much what would be considered like a college education. I mean, I did three years of trade school when I was in high school and then um, technically two years of a vocational school after I graduated from high school. Yeah. And I'm still, you know, I still wasn't ready to go out there and tear apart cars like this shit fucking takes time. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's applicable to many other fields where like a lot of the technology is so advanced now that it's not like you can always just walk right in and the job is, hey, like you can't just go out back and change oil in your car anymore. That's it's completely oh. different for most vehicles now. <laughs> they're, they're way too complicated. Well, oil is actually one of the few that you can still change on your own, you know, but it, again, it's one of those things, you know, spark plug. Yeah, God bless you if you want to change them in like some of the new Cadillacs or GMs or anything like that. Fuck, imagine like a European car. <laughs> no. It's like, first you got to go in and find the owner's manual. And it's like, what kind of spark plug am I supposed to? Is this one of those high high heat ones? Do I need to make sure I got a platinum spark plug or will the gold do? <laughs> you know, and, and then after I put it in, how many of these fuses do I need to reset and switches? And what's the process for resetting it so that I turn off the check engine light? All right. You know, and you start going through, it's, dude, I'm just going to take it to the shop. <laughs> right. Well, now my shop, our labor rate's up to $210 an hour. Like, dude, this is, it's freaking Pittsburgh. We're, we're an hour away from Pittsburgh. Dude, people don't have this kind of money. A house here, you know, the mm -hmm. average house price is like a hundred dollars to $350,000 around here. People ain't rich. We can't fucking afford $200 an hour. What the fuck's wrong with you? You know, and, but that's one of those things you're looking at opportunity cost. 
Mm-hmm. You know, how many people have the skills in order to go in and take care of a 2016 Dodge Caravan? All right. Not that many. You know. How are you going to read it? You know, what's the process? Who's actually certified to touch it so that they don't burn, you know, the warranty on the engine train? You know, and all of a sudden the shop's responsible for something that the manufacturer should have been responsible for. You know, so you start taking a look at the skill set, the certifications, the requirements. And it's like, who's, you know, how many people can they actually afford to send to the training for that? And it starts to add up. So, yeah, the one technician in the shop at 20 is actually qualified to work on that specific vehicle. And I mean, literally, it's that bad. It's that specific vehicle. It actually is, yeah. You know, who's certified on the Dodge Caravan? Okay, who's certified on, you know, Duran? You know, who's, and it's like, okay, you know, we like to think it's all the same engine, but no, it's a different code. It's a different wire. You know, it's a different expectation what the certification requirements going to be because each one of them has got the proprietary bullshit. Yeah. You know, it's not like Mopar back in the 70s. Mm. Oh, you, God, know, no. where, <laughs> you know, where seven different lines of cars all had the same damn engine because there was only one person building the engine for the muscle cars. Mm-hmm. You know, and everybody knew what a V8 and a straight six looked like. So it's like, yeah, okay. Anybody can do it. Anybody can fix it. Oh, the water pump's gone? Well, there's only five different water pumps, you know, and then, you know, go find which one for the model. But no, that's not the way it is anymore. We got so much electronics in it. You know, you got your uh, surveillance system, your tracking system, your anti-theft devices. Yeah. You know, and half of the anti-theft devices are actually capable of shutting down your system just because the person who owns the title, you know, on your lease and or you know um loan is capable of shutting down your system and locating your car and telling you telling the repo guy exactly where it's at yeah honestly you know it's like you you don't own anything you know your ability to go out and get a car off the street that's you know two grand that you know you can fix in your own garage gone it's gone you know, they're in the process of phasing those out. Now everybody wants you to have these electric cars. I am stoked to tell you guys about the show's new sponsor. I am now working with MTS Nutrition, which is a brand that I've believed in for a very long time. And they run awesome cells and they have awesome products. So um, I want to tell you about their amazing protein powder, which you're going to ask me how many pounds I have of the protein powder. And the answer is all of them. So here I got red velvet cake, 25 grams of protein. And they have the amino acids and everything on there, 59 servings. Peanut butter fluff, uh, fluffer nutter, 26 grams of protein. And then also the chocolate chip cookie, which literally has real pieces of chocolate chip cookie in there. So 27 grams of protein, 180. As I've talked about on the show, getting your protein is very, very important. So make sure you hit that link below and purchase your protein powder through MTS Nutrition. Boom! Mm-hmm. Hey, you thought the theft device can controls on the regular cars were bad yeah i mean we joke about it we joke about you know you slam elon musk on twitter he's going to shut off your you know ev and it's like well yeah he could he's done it you know cops have called in you know teslas and said hey i got a license plate such and such stop it 
you know, it's been done. Right. You know, we're at that stage in things. And it's like, everybody's worried about, but, but my Twitter, <laughs> I got banned on to dude, getting banned on Twitter is the least of your problems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what? That's, that's actually true. Yeah. And, and we're like so myopically focused on kind of like the one issue and everybody's expecting Elon Musk to be the savior. But um, I think after 2020, because everybody's waiting for Donald Trump to be their savior, he's not your savior. Elon Musk ain't your savior. I'm sorry. You got to be the hero in your own story. This has been something I've been saying on the podcast and other people's podcasts, but honestly, you know, you have to be the hero of your own story because nobody is going to come save you. No. And we've watched, you know, um, Elon Musk, he's flip flopped several times. Right. You know, where is he? You know, I remember one point he wanted to stick chips in our heads. No, he still wants to. Well, yeah, he still wants, you know, everybody wants to do Starlink, Starlink straight into your head, you know. Um, you have a Starlink over in Ukraine and Iran. Funny enough, just, just all over the world, and especially, like, the, the whole Ukraine deal is kind of funny, too. And, oh, don't forget, he also has, like, weapons deals with Israel, so, like, mm-hmm. makes you wonder. <laughs> well, I mean, we've been using GPS-guided missiles and everything. We The system exists. The system's out there. Oh, yeah. You know, we've been using GPS for 20, 25 years now on a regular basis. We've been using GPS to guide missiles, you know, aircraft, uh, blue force trackers, you know, those of us in the military realize how ineffective they were at the time and continue to be, but the technology still exists. And if everybody, anybody actually figures out how to use it effectively, it's going to be really dangerous. You know, the fact that right now, all they've cared about is that the technology exists and not necessarily that it's used effectively or efficiently. We've been lucky. You know, you talk about the NSA. Dude, NSA collects on everybody, anybody. You know, uh, data that's collected, your cell phone, call chain, you know. There's a repository in an NSA file somewhere that has everybody you've ever called, everybody on every one of your social media accounts, you know, and now you are linked to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm happy. You know, between all of my social media accounts, I got something like, you know, 10,000 different, you know, links in my link tree. And it's like, which one of them is actually important? You know, how are they weighted? Right. Dude, I just buried myself in mass information. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only defense we got, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about because if you throw up defenses, if every hacker you talk to says, you know, we don't care about mid-level. Because if you just got mid-level security on something, you're not hiding anything. Mm-hmm. You start putting on those extra tiers at high-level performance. I don't care whether you're hiding anything or not. You've just planted a flag that said, hey, take me on. (laughs) But if you're just a mediocre somebody buried in, you know, 20,000 different social media contacts, which contact's important? And just how important is that link between you and them? Mm -hmm. You know, anybody who's going through my social media links and contacts saying he's important because he's a set. Oh. He's just 9,000 nobodies. <laughs> right. 
you know, well, that's not fair. You know, everybody's somebody. Right. But it's like, where are you in, you know, the realm of things? How are you thinking? What are you communicating? What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to go around and rest in 10,000 of my followers. No, that's not feasible. <laughs> it's right. They're not going to go around rest arresting 5,000 of yours. You know, what's Kyle talking about? What sort of things has he gotten you into? <laughs> How many feds do you have following you? <laughs> There's probably a few in all of ours, but you know, as to how conscientious they are, who the fuck knows, you know? Right. You know, are are they paying enough attention to where they catch that time when we talk about, you know, we need to do a J6 again? <laughs> Be no, kind of based no. if we did, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, I mean, that's what they're looking at. But the thing is, is when you look at all of that information, you take a look. We had all the information. The NSA had all the information for the 9-11 attacks. Yep. Okay. Six, 12 months of following these people. Mm-hmm. They had all of the information. They had all of the collection. They had all of the phone calls, all of the texts, yep. you know, where they were working, where they were living. They had all of this. Okay. It took them three days to reverse engineer all of that data after the event Mm -hmm. to find the smoking gun. It's where we're at with the tech. Yes, they own everything in your data. But if it's older than six months, it's already been wiped from the database. Mm -hmm. And their ability to find anything in the last six months related to anything you do tomorrow, even if they know to look for it, they're not going to find it for another week. Right. Okay. After, you have to imagine there's just oversaturation because of how how much people are using this damn thing, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. You know, as much as we make it a sad statement about the things these days with the FBI going, yeah, he was on our radar. Yeah, there's a file with a bunch of collected texts, social media processes, code words that have been picked up and dropped in a file. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was on their radar because somebody created a file on him. They weren't tracking him close enough to see when he actually broke. And they weren't able to reverse engineer what went wrong with their surveillance until a week after right. the school shooting or the club shooting or the whatever. Yeah, they were on their radar. But they weren't able to do anything with that information that was on their radar until after it was too late to save lives. So, yeah, then that begs the question of, okay, so if they're not able to proactively go after these kind of things, then how? what's the likelihood they're going to go after you preemptively if they can't even do it? in a reasonable amount of time afterwards. Cause even like with some of the situations, I think it was that Dylan roof, he had a history of like killing animals and there were oh, YouTube yeah. comments that he was leaving saying that I'm going to commit a mass like documented. And then everyone mm-hmm. after him and they let him go. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's where we're at with the surveillance state. Yes. The surveillance state is capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. And as we all, you know, as libertarians, one of the things, you know, we like to say is, you know, state comes at us. Well, if you don't have anything to hide, you know, you don't need to be worried. And of course, the rebuttal to that is, 
I don't need privacy because what I am doing is wrong. I need privacy because your judgment and intent with what you do with that information is questionable. Exactly. And the government's intent may not always be correct. In fact, quite often it's wrong as well. Right. You know, so that's one of those things why we continue to ask for the removal of the surveillance state, why we persist on saying, you know, the surveillance state needs to go away. You know, we look at him from, okay, Snowden, take a look at Snowden. He, Chelsea and Manning and several of the others, they were able to use the surveillance state against the surveillance state. Because they had access to the information where the surveillance state damned themselves with their own surveillance information. Okay. Where are we actually at with that? Because it's like in every one of those cases, the state, you know, squelched that information. You know, where they weren't able to actually kill the journalists who uncovered it. They criminalized them and, you know, devaluated, you know, the public's perception of the information that they were giving to the world. Yeah. So, yeah, where are we with the surveillance state? Do we want to continue the surveillance state against the surveillance state? Or we just want the surveillance state to go away altogether? Clearly be preferable for the latter, where it goes away completely. Yeah, again, it's one of those things. Where are we at with the decentralization? How do we break down and redistribute the responsibilities in power mm-hmm. so that all of this tech, all of this capacity, capability, no longer exists in the hands of a few people? You know, one of my main rants against the FBI, coin, uh, counter intel pro, cointel pro, you know, it's been around since the 50s. You know, before that, it was, you know, Hoover's, you know, personal pet project. You know, the FBI, even before the FBI was the FBI, was being used to monitor and surveil public figures in order to control what they say by finding damning evidence that would be able to be sustainable through blackmail. You know, so that they could sustain the cooperation of these public figures. You know, we take a look at documentation that comes back afterwards. Not only was, you know, JFK and Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King and most of the Black Panthers and several of these other peace activists and organizers that turned out that they had something, you know, they became controlled opposition because the FBI was able to find something on them that made them blackmailable. You know, Hoover was doing that before they were even the FBI with them. He was doing it for 40 years after they become the FBI. This is who the FBI is. (laughs) It's a feature. It's not a bug. It's a feature, not a bug. You know, what they're doing right now with the Twitter files. It's what they do. Mm Mm-hmm. It's who they were programmed to be from their inception. Right. It should come as a shock to nobody. And and, and the fact that people are like surprised about these Twitter files, every single one I've seen, I'm like 
it's not really that surprising. Like even when uh Trump or they came out and said, which I was happy because it seemed like some of this stuff, it's almost like it's filtered to give red meat to the political right until um the one had came out where they said, oh, Donald Trump was actually pressing Twitter to uh, censor some stuff surrounding COVID as well. And I, I, people want to act like everything's a conspiracy out to get the political right or Donald Trump in particular. But like, this goes to show you, he was in on it too. Like, don't fucking fool yourself. Well, he well, wanted I, to control just as much. And, and that's one of the things, you know, it, it seems like it's feeding the right because there's an awful lot of people that want to believe that the left was bad. Mm -hmm. Okay. But the thing is, is it's a big club and none of us are in it. <laughs> there are an awful lot of people that are very upset with the Twitter files because it revealed, you know, what was going on behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they're not upset because of who. It was the fact that the process was exposed. Right. There were an awful lot of GOP waiting for their turn behind the curtain. Mm. You know, just as much as there were Democrats waiting for their turn behind the curtain. You know, you had the Biden, you had uh, Hillary Clinton. It's my turn. It's my turn. You know, it's my turn to be behind the curtain. You know, and you got an awful lot of that in career politicians. You know, and the fact that we just pulled back the curtain and showed everybody what was going on. You know, not necessarily, it, but the people who did. And everybody's looking at that and going, we we can't trust anybody mm -hmm. with that kind of power because they were able to control the fear programming of an entire generation by what they allowed and disallowed on major social media platforms. Right. And unless you were smoking and token, that anxiety got to you, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... It's truly crazy because it, it really does shape the way that we think even. And people don't really get to that level of it because you're only seeing what Twitter, what Facebook, what YouTube wants you to see. So mm -hmm. if you're only seeing this, then there's a whole other world out there of information that you're just not getting. So you can only think within the bounds that are set for you unless you actively seek out the information. And look, I'm a dude who will read studies all day and try to find shit that disagrees with me so that way I can be better educated. But most people ain't going to fucking do that. Most people are going to take their feed and they're going to run with it. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, and I'm as guilty as the rest of them on that. There are times right. when I see something and I go, makes sense to me. Right, and guilty as well. You know? I mean, I've done that, you know, and there are times when I've had to eat crow and come back and went, yeah, yeah, I may have jumped the gun on that one. Yeah, th there are some other things involved in this scenario that I didn't, you know, figure in originally. Right. You know, but at the end of the day, you're right. There's all this information out that we are not allowed to see. You know, it's the blank spots in the puzzle. It's the pieces that have been pulled out and we're trying to figure out what the pieces are supposed to look like. You know, we got a shape, we got colors, we got something going on, but it's like, I'm still missing pieces in the puzzle. Yeah. How many of us can actually take half of a puzzle, put it together, and then draw in the missing parts? Not many. And I play, <laughs> I'm not that talented. <laughs> right? 
Right. But, you know, and, and that's one of the things we continue to look at with the surveillance state. And, you know, the thing that goes on with fear programming, the things that say we need to go to war because that's the only thing that's going to keep us safe from the Chinese and the Russians. Yeah. We need to kill them before they kill us. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> dude, the Russians don't want to kill us. Mm-hmm. Your average Russian civilian doesn't give a shit about us. Your average Russian soldier doesn't give a shit about us you know at the end of the day if they were to land and we were to invite them to dinner they'd sit down and eat with us mm-hmm. you know the only thing we care about you know and we're being driven to fear we're driven to fear perfect strangers who have no more interest in killing us you know than we would if we were actually looking at them and pulling the trigger. You know, it's one thing when they're this nebulous, you know, otherness. Mm-hmm. You know, our pro-war xenophobia, you know, the aliens are all out to get us. And then we transpose that onto other humans, you know, halfway around the world, you know, that are just trying to figure out how to eat like we are and keep shelter over their kids, you know, so that their kids can grow up and, you know, someday be able to work the same plot of land that they grew up on. You know, there's more in com- we have more in common, you know, with your average labor halfway around the world, you know, than we do with our government. Right. Yeah. You know, true. We, we talk about that all the time. You know, we as human beings, as individuals have more in common with a stranger halfway around the world than we do with the people who run our government. Mm-hmm. But the governments want to stay one another. So that way, once again. Somebody gets a payday. Raytheon, Lockheed Martin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know what slows that down? Marijuana. (laughs) Because if we're all less anxious about what the fear that they're selling us, we're less interested in going to war with total strangers. (laughs) And I swear, that more than anything else is the reason why Nixon had to make sure that marijuana was on the list of shit that was illegal. (laughs) <laughs> you you need to start doing our commercials for your uh, <laughs> for your legal or le- legislative marijuana le- legalization jesus christ i can't even talk <laughs> marijuana legalization efforts out there in idaho dude you'd be perfect for it so <laughs> i would be respectful how do we stop the war here. smoke more marijuana you know <laughs> let the fear go you know <laughs> yeah, yeah no, dude, i agree i agree yeah you know it, it is one of those things and we need to do something to counteract fear propaganda yeah. As libertarians, you know, one of the things that we talk about, you know, be brave in the face of danger. You know, stand your ground. Be unique, be you, be special. Mm-hmm. You know, and the thing that keeps trying to take that away from us is the fear of propaganda. Because the second we give in to fear, we're willing to accept the suggestions from the make-believe authorities. Mm-hmm. You know, it was fear that made people susceptible to the COVID regime. Right. If you don't go into lockdown for two weeks, everybody's going to die. You know, we bought that for at least six months. Mm-hmm. You know, some more or less. And the thing is, is the GOP can't claim to be innocent of it because Trump was one of them who was saying two weeks to, you know, flatten the curve. Yeah. And then criticizing the places came out that under lockdown. Trump. Yep. You know, and all of a sudden once Biden, you know, 
gets in charge, all of a sudden it's, you know, oh no, you know, it, the Democrats were the one. No, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it was both. Whether it they wanted it or not. Yeah, it they both, both wanted it, mm-hmm. you know. The number of people in the administration that changed between Trump and Biden was negligible. Mm-hmm. You had the same Joint Chiefs of Staff. You had the same CDC. You had the same FBI and CIA and all of the junior officers in the State Department. None of these people changed. It was the same bureaucracies. It was the same deep state under both of them. Yep. And that right there should have raised red flags for people. And it didn't. Fossey was still given the orders, you know, under Biden that he was given under Trump. Right. That didn't change. You know, yet somehow Trump was the saint in one scenario and Biden was the saint in the next scenario or vice versa. Right. But Fossey was still the devil on their shoulder in both scenarios. Right. Right. It just became a partisan game. Yeah. So that way people could beat. And it's very clever on the Republicans' parts because even like Ron DeSantis is the champion of the COVID regime. Um, He locked Florida down and he actually wasn't he wasn't the first one to open up. That was actually, if I recall correctly, well, Christy Nome never locked down in South Dakota. And then Brian Kemp, I believe, was the first one to open up after locking down. And then Ron DeSantis locked Florida down for a few months. And now, once again, granted, his response is better than most. But let's not get it twisted. He still was part of it. And I think what makes DeSantis different is that he's able to really feel which way the wind's blowing in the political party. So that's why he's able to kind of get all his popularities because he knows which way the party's going. Trump had his finger on the pulse back in 2016, but he no longer does. The problem with Ron DeSantis is that look who supports him. All the fucking worst people in the world. This motherfucker tortured people in Guantanamo Bay and was in fucking Fallujah in, I think it was 2006. If you don't think this dude's a fucking, like, the devil incarnate when it comes to foreign policy stuff, you need to fucking pull the wool off your eyes. He can stay as governor for all I care, but don't put that fucking dude in the White House because he will be fucking George Bush 2.0. Right. You know, in, but that's one of the things with the state. And it's one of the reasons why we continue to organize, you know, for decentralization. Yeah. You know, there are people who talk an awful lot about, you know, well, it needs to be all of it. We need to, you know, get rid of all of the state. Well, no, the United States is not ready to disappear the entirety of the state. Right. You know, you're looking at federal government, state government, counties, you know, communities, mm-hmm. municipal governments, you know, is, you know, one of my former mentors here in Idaho used to say, the closer to home I get, the more socialist I get. <laughs> I like those amenities that the city provides. Mm-hmm. You know, I like knowing that the city is providing clean drinking water. I like knowing the sewer is going to work. I like knowing the roads are nice and tidy. And I'm willing to make sure that a certain amount of my funding goes to the city to make that happen. Right. And even in a stateless society, you would still be paying those things. So, I mean, if you're paying yeah. for them now, they they should work. <laughs> they should work. 
You know, and instead, here we are, we're losing 30% of our income straight to the federal government, which 60%, you know, mind you, that's not 60% of the 30%, but 60% because they take the 30% plus 30% and create this fake fiat currency in order to spread around the world, in order to create this financial dominion over these poor sap countries who, for some reason, think the U.S. currency still has value. You know, and we're funding bio labs in, you know, I have no idea how many countries. I know we're funding bio labs in China. You know, there's been rumor that we've been funding bio labs in Ukraine. You know, some of that supposedly is Russian propaganda. Some of it's whistleblowers, you know, from the CDC saying, no, we we funded them. Yeah, well, everything's um, Russian propaganda if you disagree with the Biden administration. Well, well, yeah, and that's it. You know, but it's the same thing. We got Ukrainians saying, no, it's Russian propaganda. Well, they, come on, you know, slow down here some. You know, because we know what the U.S. government has been responsible for over the years. Mm-hmm. Okay, one of my recent tweets was, you know, um, if you support Joe Biden and call Putin a war criminal, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, I, I mean... Biden has not met a war he didn't support since he became a senator in 1973. Mm-hmm. He has voted yes on every war, every military action, you know, every war on the people. Mm-hmm. He's voted on every counterterrorism, super surveillance, you know, prison state bill. I mean, literally, there is nobody who hates American people more than Joe Biden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know and he likes dead people yeah yeah he, he's got this cush little place in senate but the thing is is he's voted for war he's voted for death and he's voted for destruction every opportunity he's gotten mm-hmm. you know he watched okay and this is one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy joe biden was sitting on the senate judiciary committee you know, in the transition between um, George Bush Sr. and Clinton, okay? So he was sitting on that committee during both Ruby Ridge and Waco. He was the chair. He was the one that gave the Department of Justice, the ATF, and the FBI the get-out-of-jail-free card for everything that went down at Ruby Ridge and Waco. Absolved. And it was because of Joe Biden. This is the man we elected as president. <laughs> oh, when people tell you who they are, you should believe them. He, you know, and he didn't just tell us, he showed us repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we still, you know, well, depending on whether you believe, you know, the whole election denier process or not, you know, but the thing is, is he is still the president. However, you know, by hook or by crook or legitimately, you know, whether it was individual states who leveraged their popular vote, you know, through corruption, whatever, we still ended up with Biden sitting in the Oval Office. And we knew who he was. 
we knew he who he was going into the primaries. Mm-hmm. When we had to choose the primary winner, you know, by whatever means, the people who voted for Joe Biden in the primaries knew who he was. They had no excuse. They knew who he was. You know, it's one of those reasons why if you look at it and if you assume that, you know, the election was legitimate, you know, people weren't voting for Joe Biden. They were voting against Trump. Yeah, I think a lot of people discount that fact. I think a lot of people did not understand how much some people just could not stomach the idea of another four years of Trump, because to them, Biden seemed like a return to normalcy, like a return from everybody losing their fucking minds over everything that happens around Donald Trump. But then guess what? You traded that off for now all the inflation that we have, which Donald Trump is largely responsible for. Mm -hmm. But once again, Biden has no competency or desire to fix that inflation. And then now you have the war in Ukraine, which now we've sent, I think it's like $124 billion over there. And there's no signs of diplomacy. Like Trump's, and I don't think anything would really be significantly different under Trump, but at least Trump has said like, hey, I'd be willing to go negotiate. I don't think he yeah. would, but at least he's saying that. <laughs> like, that's, least, that's something. He yeah. yeah. You know, that's one of those things. So, you know, we, we get back to the war issue. We talk about war and what it means. And, you know, one of the things we got coming up, um, you know, Scott Horton show, Jimmy Dore show, both of them have got this big Rage Against the War Machine rally going on in D.C., February 19th. You know, and it, some of us were caught a little bit off guard. It's like, whoa, whoa, you know, uh, you know, cool. What about those of us who can't get to D.C. for this? You know, are you planning on doing something local? Are you planning on doing, you know, some sort of organization, you know, outreach so that we can do a across the country in every capital, a defend the guard bill, you know, mm-hmm. thing, you know. So we got a couple that I've seen pop up. And ironically, it's some of them like, look, Nick Brandon's an asshole. <laughs> or, you know, Angela McArdle's, you know, she's wrecked the I don't want to be associated. So I'm going to throw a protest against the protest that's still an anti-war protest and it's like i'm okay okay, got it you know nick brannon people's party not a big fan uh jimmy Dore, in general i like him scott horn love the man you know anti-war you know uh none of these individuals actually represent veterans which means in a sense they don't represent me but at the same time they're still fighting for me Right. You know, they're still fighting for the kids who run the risk of being enlisted through the poverty draft. You know, they're working on making sure that the people who shouldn't be part of the machine don't become a part of the machine. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm like looking at it like, look, th- this is an opportunity, man. You know, this is an opportunity. We may not have the same language because it's like one of the things when, you know, I first got out of the military, my anti-war activism, you know, I was looking for any group that would do it. And it's like, I started showing up at these anti-war rallies and I was looking at what uh, Code Pink was doing. You know, and I was looking at what Answer was doing and I was showing up at their rallies and I'm going, dude, this is the wrong languaging. You know, this isn't talking about peace. This is literally talking about war against war. 
<laughs> All right. You know, it's like we're going to, you know, it's the expression, which I get. You know, there is a certain amount of expression of rage, but ultimately the thing problem with revolution is it comes back around. Mm -hmm. You know, comes back to the old who, you know, songs, old boss, same as the new boss or new boss, same as the old boss. Right. You know, when you're looking at revolution, it's not the people who lead the revolution aren't actually about changing the system. They want control of the system. And that's where we run into the problem when we talk revolution. And it's when you start working on the language. I don't want a war against war because we've proven that wars against anything cause more of the problem. The war against terror created more terror. You know, the war against poverty created more poverty. The war against drugs introduced fentanyl onto our streets. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want a war against an ideology or concept or an idea. I want to believe in peace. You know, and that's the difference because in order to promote peace, you have to be brave because you have to stand in the violence and not return violence for violence. Now, I'm not saying be a pacifist because in a lot of these scenarios, the violence isn't being directed at the people who are peaceful. It's being directed in an imaginary something. And it's like finding your own peace in the face of that rage and creating an anchor for other people to find their peace so that they're not feeling that anxiety, that fear, that rage against the imaginary creatures that we've been told go bump in the night. Mm -hmm. You know, we create evolution in the process we create a difference in the languaging you know we're no longer trying to fight fear with fear we're actually saying no there is nothing to fear nothing to fear but fear itself so why are we fearing the boogeyman we know he doesn't exist because he's a figment of our imagination created by people who want us scared of the dark oh I want to be respectful of your time, Joe. I can't think of a better place to end it. We got to fucking shine the light on these motherfuckers. And uh, yes, you know, hopefully um, these anti-war protests are, um, you know, filled with people because I do think this is a message that's resonating with people. There is. There but is. The one yeah. thing that I always note is that the least hawkish president wins. And I don't think that's like a gospel or a monolith, but I think it's something that we should take note of and understand that people are hungry for this message. And I think people like you and hopefully myself kind of resonate this message with people and hopefully people buy it and really enjoy it. So. Yeah. yeah, thanks for having me on the show tonight, man. Kyle, I appreciate every opportunity we have to have these conversations because I really think this it's an opportunity for growth. You know, uh, you and I, we get to sit, we get to have this discussion, we get to find common ground, you know, whether it's peace, whether it's, you know, just being the parent we wish we all could be, you know, and have this opportunity to find the opportunity to create space so that we can each be our best person. Yeah, and thank you again for this opportunity. And remember, you know, um, my stuff, Idaho Joe, Cup of Joe with Idaho, or Cup of Joe with Idaho Joe on KRTD Media, you know, uh, follow that up. 
we got peace actionism. We got kind Idaho for medical marijuana in the state. Continue to support and defend the guard bills all across, you know, the United States. Every state legislature needs to pass one of those. You know, not just the states that are looking at it, right, but everyone, because we need to take that out of, you know, the Hawks arsenal. You know, we need to stop sending kids from our communities to fight wars created by, you know, elites in D.C. You know, make them do their diplomacy, you know, stop using our kids as cannon fodder for, you know, failed failed diplomatic actions. Yeah, so when it comes to Rage Against the War Machine, Jimmy Dore, Scott Horton, you know, in D.C., whether or not you can find a local uh, movement, local action, the same day, same place, or even support it, please. You know, whether you're there for pro-peace or just to be anti-war, it's a start. And it helps the message to resonate. Yeah. It is, absolutely yeah i i um i completely agree so yeah i'm glad you did your plugs and everything but um yeah dude it's it's always enjoyable and enlightening talking to you dude we'll definitely do another one um like i said i want to be good with your time so um you know i hope everyone enjoyed the conversation i know i definitely did and um you know until next time everybody joe if you don't got nothing else we'll close out, brother family friends community as as you got those three, you can make anything happen. Yeah. And uh, smoke a joint or uh, drink it old-fashioned. <laughs> that's, that's my preferred relaxation. <laughs> All right, brother, thanks. Who's up, Mom? You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.